I'm actually going to talk about is what I say there, the story up till now, beyond those three, beyond the, the triumvirate, the core leadership, or what, whatever we call it. Okay, why? Why did I do it? It's basically talking to my book, talking about the book. Um, why did I feel the need for it? Well, partly because Z Press were interested, um, and so you don't turn down a chance like that. Partly also because they thought it was relevant, um, although I'm not sure necessarily that what it's about was quite what they expected, but nonetheless, they thought it was relevant, and of course it's relevant now, given that there's all this speculation <coughs> going on. Okay, that's why. Actually, fundamentally, it was my students that persuaded me. They didn't realise they were. What I mean by that is every year when I start talking about uh, the course that I do, the final year course, I warn them at the start all sorts of things, and I tell them, look, you are banned from using the F word and the C word. It is not all down to Fidel. It is not Castro did this, Castro did that. I say you can use it, you can use that phrase, you can use those, those words if you're absolutely certain that it was Fidel that made a speech or it was Fidel that made a decision, you can do that, that's fine, but the rest of the time they're banned and they all laugh dutifully and then go ahead and in their presentations and essays proceed to say Castro did this, Castro did that. I get so fed up with it, but of course I realise the problem actually is it's not their fault. It's that curse of Fidel centrism in fundamentally the literature. That's the problem. Practically everything they look at, every book, will actually have that. I've just been, uh, I'm in the middle of doing a very slow review of a book, which is a nice little history of one of the, t the cities in Cuba. Good little history, except it's spoilt by the fact that the author keeps on referring to the Castro militia and the Castro revolution. And you think, come on, you're a historian. It cannot be down to one person. You should do better than that. So the Fidel centrism is what fundamentally I'm trying to campaign against. But the problem actually really is caused by that, sloppy journalism. Yeah, that's where it all came from. And I'm not referring to sloppy journalism now. I'm referring to that before 1959. People like him. One of the things we have to remember, of course, is that it actually, it, this Fidel centrism started before 1959. All of those American journalists, Spanish journalists who were in the Sierra being victims of Fidel's PR up in the, in the Sierra, effectively they perpetuated, they created and perpetuated that myth that it was all down to Fidel. So it meant that when the revolution happened, 1959, there was a, an audience, at least in the United States, who thought revolution equaled Fidel. And they didn't know anybody else. They really, certainly, they'd never really significantly heard of Che Guevara and the others around him. It was all Fidel. So it all stems from there to some extent. But actually, even when we go beyond that, look at the serious literature, I think what happened was that that Fidel centrism then began to gravitate towards two paradigms, fundamentally. The first is Latin American studies, the second is studies of communism. Latin American studies principally in the United States, since it hardly existed here at the time. That's where you fitted him. First of all, Caldillon. You look at the works done in the early years of the revolution and the terms, well, ismo, fidelismo, castroism, to quote Draper. Um, but a number of times he was referred to as a modern Caldillo, 20th century Caldillo. John Lynch, you know, would have 
gone through the roof if he'd seen the number of times that his, the term caldillo was being used completely out of context. But nonetheless, that was the way it was, it was done. The explanation was, and of course if you think about the work of people like Howard Weada and so on, who talked a lot about the inherent tendencies of Hispanic cultures or Latin American cultures towards authoritarianism, towards dominant leaders, men on horseback and so on, it fitted perfectly and we were stuck with it from that point onwards. Then of course once the revolution moved towards communism, of course there was another paradigm, communist state. And of course one of the curious things about a lot of the literature on communist states written outside the communist states of course was that it was not a problem to talk on the one hand about a monolithic state and the other hand about a dominant leader after all Stalin or Tito that was the model that often was used that alright we look at Cuba now as though it's Eastern Europe in the Caribbean with a dominant leader so it just fitted it was perfect and I think we're actually stuck with it therefore we really are stuck with Fidel and that was the problem I would suggest that you remember what I referred to once a long time ago as a Fidelometer, which is quite simply, the more you quote Fidel, the more you refer to Fidel, the less you understand it, and the less the book refers to Fidel, the probably the better it is. An um, exaggeration, but at least there's something in it, something somewhere in that. And of course the problem is that they're all misleadings. They are misreadings and misleading, and it's proven twice. 1991, when the system didn't collapse, it should have done. 2006, when it should have collapsed. And remember, by the way, in the build-up to that 2006, what was happening there, quite simply, was that, that the Bush administration had already started to prepare for what they called the biological solution. They'd given up on trying to overthrow and strangle the system, and they were simply waiting for Fidel to die. And there was actually, genuinely, I couldn't believe it at the time, but I found out subsequently it was true, there were contingency plans in Florida for the flood of emigrants that would happen as soon as Fidel died, as soon as the biological solution came. Well, Fidel, of course, has not died, but even when he retired, I didn't notice a significant increase in the numbers going across the straits. So clearly, the misreading actually turned out to be a problem. It turned out to be dangerous. It turned out to be a misreading with political um, effects. Okay. Right, so the next question is, how do we go from there? Well, the two questions are, how do I go about it? That's easy. And what did I find? Mm, less interesting. Easy because, for a start, I couldn't use archives in Cuba. I'm not Julia Zweig. She had, I think, still pretty unusual access to um, the Consejo del Estado um, archives. I couldn't do that. And therefore, you can't do go to archives for this sort of stuff in Cuba. It's recent, it's politically delicate, there are all sorts of problems. So I couldn't use the archives. What I did, therefore, was use the books, um, lots of history books, for other reasons. I was going through, combing through lots of history books at the time, so I did it with two eyes on that. I'm not quite sure about that metaphor, but anyway. Um, I just went through all those books, trying to find out what had been said about all these people that I knew were out there who were around the, that triumvirate, and I found any number of things, I found all sorts of contradictions, all sorts of differences, major differences of detail, which I'll come back to a little bit. I also then went to newspapers, found lots of information in newspapers, luckily in Nottingham we've got lots of them, so I was able to go through a lot and get precise details of when people were ministerial appointments, when they weren't, and so on. 
I also then went to the usual source, which is going to Cubans and saying, what do you remember? That's the Cubans who were actually around at the time in or near government, but also people who were just on, just people there who were just there, who remember. Because you have to remember that in a culture so attuned to its own history as Cuba, then Cubans actually are a pretty reliable source of information on what precisely happened when, what the stories are about some of these people. So I put it together a little bit forensically, but almost certainly inaccurately. So I'm making guesses a lot of the time about some of the details. I hope they're intelligent guesses, but we'll soon find out. Okay, um, what therefore happened as a result of that? What did I find? Well, not a great deal. I found pretty much what I expected. Sorry about that. Which is that, yes, there was a group. There was a large group. Actually, it turned out to be much larger than I expected, so it's a little bit of a surprise. A group, there was the group around the three of them, and it was pretty much the same group that had lasted all the way through. Um, pe people have observed before that the Cuban Revolution is unusual, and you don't have major splits. If you think of Trotsky-Stalin, if you think of the Gang of Four, you think of other revolutions, you don't have a major split. But equally, that group around there really does not split very much either. There are, there are people who sin, there are people who fall out of favour, but the interesting thing is they actually come back into favour again. But what you found, therefore, was a, a, an enormous continuity of the group. And lo and behold, there are a number of people from that group still in government now. And I'm not just referring to Raul, I'm referring to some of the others, ministerial appointments and others around the, the group. The interesting thing about that, of course, was that by and large, but not exclusively, the group was the combatientes. And I don't just mean the guerrillas, I mean the people who took part in one or more of three moments of combat during the 1950s. That revolutionary group, that rebel group, turned out to be the, most, the, the one with the greatest continuity. Others attaching themselves, coming in a little bit into the group and then leaving or just simply sitting on the edges. The interesting thing about it was it also confirmed for me that something I've always thought, which is to talk of factions, to talk of hardline, moderate, new communist, old communists, it helps a little bit. Some of the literature does that, but it doesn't get us very far. That actually, I found a new way of looking at it, nothing remarkable, the circles of power, and I came up with a notion, three circles, right? Easy. Inner circle, yep, I think there's an inner circle, and I'll go through it a little bit. And I think that was usually, but not exclusively, reserved for the leading ex-guerrillas. That was a pattern that seemed to come through. There's an outer circle, usually, once again, for ex-guerrillas, less prominent, but more reliable. The trust is the important thing. I think when you look at the group, what comes forward is that there is a trust, a loyalty to the group and a loyalty by the group to the group. There's that, that internal loyalty seems to be a cohesion which often overrides political differences, political success, which I think is quite useful. What I, the only innovation I came up with, actually, sorry, I'll come back to that in a minute, the lesser members of the PSP, I think the key one is that, the intermediate circle. Because the intermediate circle, I think, is fluid. It gets us round the problem of, of um, what I think is the problem of factions and groups opposing each other. The intermediate circle is, has a special function, I describe it. And I think what it is, it's kind of a parking lot. It's what happens to people when they've fallen out of favour for whatever reason in the inner circle, 
And the interesting thing is, when you fall out of favour, unless you really sin, really sin, you really conspire against, by and large, you don't. You're not actually cast out into the art of darkness. You actually are moved into the intermediate circle, and then you come back in. After a while, when things have changed internally, you come back in. Equally, people have moved into the inner circle through the intermediate one. So the intermediate one is actually the really interesting one. Who's parked there at any one time? And I think that's, by and large, what has happened to at least one person I can think of in the leadership, and others, I think, from time to time as well. Okay, I said combat. I think there are three moments in the combat, three key moments for membership of the inner circle, but all of them, actually, and that's the obvious one. Moncada. The attack on the Moncada barracks, 26th of July 1953, when it all began. I'll come back to that in a minute because I'm sorry that the nerd in me got really into, into the accuracy or inaccuracy of a lot of the historical detail there. So I'm going to bore you with that historical detail. The second moment was the Grandma invasion. I put it in inverted commas because actually if you look at the detail, it is really hardly qualifies as an invasion. Um, it's an expedition, it's a debacle, it's, but nonetheless, there are 82 people involved, so there's a lot there if we're looking for membership of the inner circle. And then there is, that's the invasion on the 2nd of December, which of course was supposed to be three days earlier. Um, and then the third moment is, or it's not a moment, it's actually a long period, it's the time in the Sierra, but I date it from the 5th of December. The 5th of December is when the group had been scattered, at Alegria del Pion, and then gathered together. And I'm going to come back to that again, because once again, there's a lot of myth-making there, and there's a lot of detail that needs to be worked through. The problem with the Sierra is that that is clearly the badge of honour, in a sense, but it depends very largely on when they joined, where they fought, and the problem with that is the numbers are just all over the place, because that, the, the composition of the Sierra... For a start, there are at least three Sierra groups at various, at one point in particular. Five, eventually, when they start the columns marching westwards. And so the numbers are just vague. And numbers keep on increasing, decreasing, depending on the numbers coming, re being recruited, moving on to another part. So any figures you see about the numbers of people in the Sierra are going to be approximate only. That's, and it's not that no one's keeping record of this, it's just that it was a very fluid situation. Okay, let's look at the detail there a little bit. The starting point is the Moncada, and that's a, that's a good starting point because we know the people who planned the Moncada attack, all of them characterised by being members of the Orthodoxo party beforehand, and some of them still. And that gives us a pretty good idea of the origins of the inner circle there. The interesting thing, by the way, is very few of them last in significant positions of political um, authority very few of them are decision makers eventually, but the loyalty is there to start with. Two of those incidentally die uh, pretty quickly. Abel Santa Maria and Nico Lopez die at points fairly soon, but the others survive beyond 1959. Mirek, by the way, is the interesting one to me, because he's a bit like Wally in the photographs, in the pictures. He's there every time. Every time there's an inner circle, every time there is something going on, there's Mirek. And you can never actually... Yes, you've got various ministerial appointments, but he never seems to be extremely significant, but he's always there. And I think it dates from here. I think that's the thing. He was, he was in at the start, therefore there's a loyalty to him and by him all the way through. 
So that's the starting point, is the Moncada itself. Now here's where I bore you with the figures, okay? Do not attempt to remember these, please. Because the figures, my sources for the figures, are, by the way, are going to be two, initially. Hugh Thomas, and by the way, he, gets in, he comes in for a lot of criticism in this, because so many of his facts and figures are wrong. But nonetheless, I go with him, and I go to Wikipedia as well. Okay, so... <laughs> Okay, how to say, show you how wrong you can be. Not desperately wrong. Incidentally, that's the first point. It's called Moncada, but it's not. It's Moncada and Bayamo. Actually, even in Cuba, Bayamo's forgotten. Even in Bayamo, Bayamo's forgotten. <laughs> Honestly, if you go to Bayamo, you have to look for the, the cuartel, and you don't find much in the way of commemoration of it. It really is, and I've seen recently a history of Bayamo which doesn't mention it. So... Somehow, Bayamo gets lost out because Moncada is the key one. Okay, Wikipedia says 160. Uh, Thomas says 165, although 162 is another one given there. They're all wrong. Actually, they're 110. Uh, approximately 135 is the Wikipedia one. Okay, what it doesn't count is the ones who never made it. 160 was planned. There were people who got lost, who got punctures, who were sent, who gave up once they found out what they were going to do. So the numbers change quite substantially. And there were 22 at Bayamo, again, Wikipedia, and Thomas says 28. Okay, that's it, fundamentally. 99 survivors is one figure given, okay, but only as if you start with 160 of them. In fact, we think it was probably 76, and that's the interesting one, the 51 who go on trial. That's the group. That's what really matters. I'm not going to go into the detail of that because we haven't got time in any way. Most of them just simply don't become important after that. They took part in it. 22 of them, by the way, later go on to become part of the Gramma. So be, having been at or around Moncada or Bayamo, actually Bayamo, there's no real evidence that Bayamo made a lot of difference to their particular position within the, the that hierarchy. But the Mon participation in the Moncada did make a difference. Okay, so it's nothing more than my nerdishness there, just to show you, look, don't believe the figures you see, because they're probably not right. Okay, now that was the basis for, two years later, the first National Directorate. This is immediately after Fidel and others are released from prison. They then put, actually formally put together the July the 26th movement, and the National Directorate meets, and there we have it. And you can see the ones I put up there are mostly the survivors of the Moncada, so we can see that continuity, plus two others have joined. Those two others, Armando Hart and Faustino Perez, are significant because they actually don't quite fit the pattern, but they do remain part of that inner group. And they're also, what they have in common is that they were members of another group, the MNR, the Movimiento Nacionalista Revolucionario, which was founded in 52, which actually, incidentally, did organise an attack on a military barracks of Campamento Colombia, which never took place because they were found out, most of them were arrested, the thing never happened. I wonder quite how much that, that would-be attack was an inspiration for Moncada. It's possible. But um, the interesting thing is that Hart actually seems to have led the movement from the MNR to the 26th of July. And I think that's one point for which he was constantly remembered and therefore it earns him Brownie points, quite clearly, within the, the leadership. I'll come back to him again. 
Two years later, having spent time in Mexico, they then land on the Granma. Well, there are two stages of this, of this whole issue. One is who are the 82, and I will not give you the 82, I promise you. Not least because we'll see very few of them actually survive in the end. But the interesting thing is who actually did survive, and that's where we come back to a little bit more myth-making. Right, the myth-making is the 12. Where does the 12 come from? We hear this story about there being 12 survivors. Well, the most obvious thing is religious, I think. Must be, mustn't it? Apostles? It's got to be. Actually, it's not just that. It's historical. Because at one point, at least we know from one account, that what happens is Fidel says, OK, there's only 12 of us, but Céspedes, in 1868, said the same thing. With 12, we've got enough. We can actually do it. Well, just at that point, there were 12. They then went on to be 15 and then 18. So the 12 really never really survived particularly. But it also comes down to this book. Carlos Franchi, Libro de los Doce, produced early on. You would think it's about the 12 in the Sierra. No, it's not. Although it is a classic case of myth-making, it really is. It's produced in Cuba, and it's pictures on the front of gorillas. So you expect it to be about the 12 gorillas who survive. Now, if you look at that, they're the only gorillas of the 12 that he writes about. Okay. Only six of those were survivors from the grandma. Okay. He mentions Che at the start, but he's not actually talked about in the 12. And then you've got others. The interesting one to me is Juan Ponce, who no one has ever really heard of at all, but he's in there in the 12. And clearly what's happening is he's took, he took 12 people who seemed to represent something significant at that time, put them together, picked up on the myth of the 12, and actually he comes out with that myth-making because he says at one point, but there were 12. I chose 12 because there were 12 gorillas. But then he then lists the people, he goes into the details in the book of people who are not gorillas. So clearly what he's done, and he, let's face it, he was an editor of the newspaper, he knows about PR, he's picked up on that and perpetuated that myth of 12. So from that point onwards, typically if you ask Cubans who don't know how many gorillas survived, they'll tell you 12. No, actually it was 15 or 18 or something like that. So there we are, there are the figures. Okay. 24 were killed at Alegria, that's where they, they were attacked in the cane field. 22 were arrested, 19 fled, and I've never known what happened to those 19, actually. Um, some of them were subsequently arrested, but most of them just simply went back to normal life. 18 survived. One figure actually gives 22, if you do the, the, the maths correctly. But I say there were never any time 12, except briefly, ever so briefly, actually... And that's because they were in groups. They were in groups of eight, three, four, coming together. So at no stage do the groups actually match up to 12. All right, nothing more than nerdishness on my part. I apologise for that. But it does come back to the myth-making, but it does also come back to those people who did survive, because that is the crucial issue. Much more important than who was on the grandma is who survived. They're the key ones. And you can see them there. We're starting to recognise them now. Fidel and Raúl... Okay, Moncada, Che Guevara, of course, not in the Moncada at all. And remember, by the way, he was not significant at the time. He was simply the doctor of the group. He becomes much more significant, clearly, not least by being one of the 18 that survived. That clearly makes a difference. 
I would actually incidentally point in passing there to Juan Almeida. He does not get much of a press by and large, and Thomas dismisses him shamefully. You suspect, and there's one pattern about the people that Thomas dismisses, I have to say, I'm sincerely hoping no one around here related to Hugh Thomas. There is no accident that the people he dismisses actually are either female or black. And I think there's something in that. Um, he's not alone in that, by the way. Um, but you can see the pattern there. Some of those we'll recognise. Some of those come back. Some of them disappear from the scene a little bit. But that is the core, to some extent. They're the survivors of that, that uh, Alegría del Pío de Bacla. So they're the real ones that count from the Granba. Interestingly, not many of those were at the Moncada. Okay? So membership of the Moncada group, or membership of the Sierra group, is going to be the idea. The, the, the possible badges if you were in both you're made clearly although later on you could join the Sierra and still get there and that we know when I look at Hugh Thomas's list of the core in 1958 he's got those four well you'd have to be a fool to miss those four I mean that's fairly obvious those are interesting and I think he's probably right because I think they are there as part of the group. Guillermo Garcia is, the, is an interesting one because he's described as the first peasant to join the revolution. That sounds as though he was persuaded by the, the Granma group. Actually, he was in on it before then. He was one of the group that Celia Sanchez put together in Manzanillo, in the Manzanillo area, to prepare the, for the landing. So he was indeed a rural worker. He was indeed a peasant, but he didn't actually join because he was persuaded by the guerrillas. He joined because he was part of that particular group. You've got Miret there. Remember Wally, he's there. And you've got Ramiro Valdez. He's the interesting one. He really is interesting one. If you're looking for anybody who's moving in and out of these circles, it's him. Quite significant, and he's still there. So I think he's very significant indeed. Look, Hugh Thomas has got those three in there. This is where I think he really does sin. When he's describing them later on, he dismisses them. He dismisses them as eventually, effectively, Raúl's wife, Fidel's secretary, and Armando Hart's wife. He is wrong. Well, yes, he's not wrong in terms of that's what they were, but he is wrong in terms of their significance because they really were went on to be very significant, but they were pretty significant there. Um, interestingly, by the way, they were not, of course, initially guerrillas. They were part of the Llano, part of the urban uh, movement, in the cities and principally in Havana. They were the conduits, effectively, between the urban movement and the Sierra. Interestingly, however, they did all join the Sierra eventually, not just when they formed the Mariana Grajales uh, guerrilla for women, which really got going in mid to late 1958. But the interesting thing is that they, in a sense, also earned their spurs by being in the Sierra. So they're part of the groups as they go along. None of them took part, of course, in the Granma, so none of them were the survivors of the Granma, but they joined fairly soon afterwards. Hart is there. He's right. Hart is interesting because he's not a guerrilla. He's a member of the Llano, and the Llano, the, if you read in the book, in the literature, about the differences between the Llano and the Sierra, they're not wrong. There were suspicions. There were doubts. Che Guevara had clear doubts about the political commitment of the people and the judgment of the people in the Llano. There was a lot of criticism that they were not supplying the Sierra sufficiently. There was a lot of criticism of not having been radicalized. 
But I do have to say that I think the tension between the Llano and the Sierra has probably been exaggerated, because when it when you boil down to it, if you were in the movement, you were part of, and a significant part in the movement, you were part of the inner group, potentially. And Hart, I think, was clearly part of that. Hart, incidentally, was arrested in the 1950s, uh, late 50s, so he couldn't take part in some of those movements anyway. And that may well have absolved him of some of the blame of the Llano, like in the failed strike, for example, of April 1958. Okay, he also incidentally adds those two, uh, Fernandez Font and Faustino Perez. Faustino Perez is interesting because he was in the Granma and was dispatched back to the Llano to become one of the organisers of the movement, of support movement. So in a sense... If, again, if there is a sin of having been in the Llano group through not having been a Sierra, well, he already was a guerrilla and then comes back again. So he's okay. He's part of it. So Thomas is probably right there. Right, moving on. 1959, that's one of the sources of, once again, the inner circle, the hidden government. That's the term used by Ted Schultz um, when he's doing the biography of... Um, of Fidel, and others use the same term, because what happens there is that authors, different authors, have confused three different groups, all meeting in the same time in roughly the same area, and I think they confuse the three groups completely. There were, of course, there was an overlap, and very quickly those three groups are, first of all, there was indeed a series of meetings in Kohimar, east of Havana, um, between the 26th of July and the PSP, the pre-59 communists. And you can see the people of the 26th of July were very much, yes, that inner, inner group, not just the inner group, but the inner, inner group. It was the, all of them, and Ramiro Valdez was there, as you'd expect. Camilo was there, by the way. That's interesting, because one of the, I think, myths created about Camilo afterwards is that, of course, he dies in a plain crash mysteriously, at least we assume it was a plane crash in 1959, that gets going all sorts of conspiracy theories, including that he was opposed to the drift towards the Communist Party and therefore was eliminated. There is absolutely no evidence of him being anti-communist or having any doubts about it. In fact, he was quite in, uh, comfortable to work with the PSP when the march, the column was marching westwards. There is no evidence of that at all. And he was in on those discussions. So, as far as we can tell, that was the group. Interesting, of course, those three, that was the three you would expect if you know anything about the PSP, the Pre-59 Communist Party. Carlos Rafael Rodriguez and Blas Roca are the two who are always there. One, if you like, is the intellectual leader, that's Carlos Rafael Rodriguez, who does really survive substantially. Blas Roca is the organiser, the party leader, who probably did more than anything else to keep the party together. Aníbal Escalante, of course, blots this copybook big time in 1961-62 with the, um, uh, the apparent attempt to take over the revolutionary movement and then his disgrace twice, 62 and 68. So he looks like the villain of the piece, except that he gets a bad press. He actually was... One of the things that was really interesting about him, by the way, is that those three actually have quite different views about that collaboration with the guerrilla movement, with the 26th of July movement. Only one of those three was enthusiastic about it, and that's Carlos Rafael Rodriguez. He was quite clear that this was a significant movement and a revolutionary movement, and we should work with them. 
Blas Roca was a little bit more neutral about it. He couldn't make his mind up. Aníbal had absolutely no doubt that this was not a revolution and that therefore, presumably, it was acceptable to try and do what eventually happened there within the, the, three, the movement of the three uh, different revolutionary groups. The second group, which is confused with that, is also in Coquimar, just down the road, was where the PSP met regularly to plan and talk about their relations with the other group. I mean, Kohima is a tiny place, I have to say. Therefore, the chances of them knowing about each other are pretty great. Uh, but they were not in the same house. They were actually in two different houses. And there was a third group in Tarara, which is the group that Schultz talks about in particular, which is near Kohimar, which is where Che Guevara was convalescing after a bad bout of asthma where they met to talk about the agrarian reform. And that's it. That's all it was, fundamentally. And the group is interesting. Filanche, interesting. No Raúl, by the way. Raúl was in Santiago at the time, when all this was taking place. Those three are interesting because they at least know about something about land reform. Okay? And Doña Núñez Jiménez, geographer, former member of the PSP, um, who seems to have left... It's not entirely clear, but he seems to have left the PSP at this stage. Ceballos was uh, uh, an expert on, to some extent, on agronomy. Pino Santos is an economist. Again, it's not entirely clear at what stage he was a member of the PSP, but he was certainly close to them and certainly described himself to me personally as having been a Marxist at that time. So let's assume he was... <coughs> radical in his politics, but they all knew about land reform. So if we're planning a land reform, they're the right people. Wally, he was there. And those two, they're the interesting ones, because I hasten to say, I'm not sure they knew anything about land reform. Vilma Espin was an engineer. Okay. Um, Alfredo Guevara, film expert. Why were they there? Well, because they were part of the inner group. That's the important point. They were there because they were close to the inner group. And Alfredo Guevara's relationship with the inner group is really interesting. And I think when, you, when it boils down to it, if you look at it in, in, in detail, Núñez Jiménez and Alfredo Guevara are, I think, very interesting because I count them as maverick members of the PSP. Um, because if you read anything about Alfredo Guevara's differences, for example, over culture in the 1960s with, for example, people like Portuondo, Mitarguirre, people who were clearly in the PSP, he's a maverick. He quite clearly does not uh, go along with the orthodox interpretation of the PSP. And I think that's one reason why he's there in that small group. He can't have been there for his knowledge of the agrarian reform, honestly. Um, neither probably was Vilma Espin. So it gives us clues about that loyalty to the inner group, one way or another. Okay, enough of that. What we're looking at, of course, in the next couple of years, and I'm not going to go through the whole lot, I promise you, by the way. These are just, I find these interesting because that's where the group is formed. What happens, of course, is the PSP and the July 26 movement do come together, and that brings about the crisis of 1962, March 1962, the Escalante Affair, the Central Committee of, that, that is drawn up by uh, Aníbal Escalante, you can see 14 members of the July the 26th movement, again the same people, over and over again. You can see that. Miret's missing, by the way. Okay. Um, but the group is there. That's the problem, of course. Ten from the PSP. That is really the problem. That's where Aníbal sins quite badly. 
And he also sins in that, only one from the Directorio. I actually think that only having one from that Directorio Revolucionario is part of the problem. That had he really was downgrading a part, I mean, the Directorio Revolucionario, remember, took part in the attack on the presidential palace, and that comes out very clearly in March 1962 when one of the members of the PSP sins by not mentioning the uh, religion and the religious <coughs> motivations of the leader of that particular group, Antonio, uh, Jose Antonio Chevaria, but also they were the group that joined with Che in the uh, attack on Santa Clara as well, so they actually played a part and downgrading them was clearly part of the problem. Anyway, what happens as a result of that is the Escalante affair blows up, they reform the, um, uh, the Central Committee and there is only one member of the PSP in it. So what we're looking at by mid-60s is an inner circle, very clearly ex-guerrillas. In other words, the PSP have come and gone, come and gone. They're around. I think they're in the intermediate circle, by and large. But if you look at the inner circle, it's those. And it's the same people, over and over again. Notice Celia Sanchez is there, by the way. She is not just a secretary. She is really significant in there. She is quite clearly an advisor. She's quite clearly a brains, a political brains. She's part of that inner circle very, very clearly. And I think equally those three. I'm less sure about Guillermo Garcia. I have to say I am less sure about him. I actually think he's there to a very large extent out of historic respect rather than anything else. But I think that the others are there. Vilma Espina and Hart are there because of their political clout and because of their shared ideology and shared view with the others. The intermediate circle, I think that's where Aide Santa Maria is. She's, she's no longer as politically significant as she was. I think she's significant. She creates Casa las Americas. She plays a very significant part in the cultural definitions of the revolution. And she remains a, a, a loyal and trusted member of the whole leadership there. But I think she's no longer taking political decisions with the others. I would actually point to those two. I think they do become very significant. Dorticos is a former member of the Juventud Socialista, the youth wing of the PSP, but clearly a member of the 26th of July movement. That's where he cut his teeth. That's where he was significant. He was a member of the Liano, but a very trusted member of them. I think he doesn't get a good enough press, by and large. He turns out, I think, in the early mid-60s to be a very significant um, person for the ideological definition of the whole process. He actually is an expert on all this and he often is guiding some of the ones who are less well versed in Marxism. He's the one who's actually pointing the way a lot of the time. Raul Rau is an interesting one by the way because he is, I think he has great autonomy when it comes to the, um, the process of defining Cuba outside, defining Cuba in the third world. He has enormous autonomy as foreign minister and actually makes, I think, goes a long way to establishing, putting Cuba on that global political map. So I think he's significant. And he doesn't belong to any group, by the way. He is, he is just simply an intellectual from the 1930s who was in the Alasquerda Estudiantil, but he doesn't belong to any of them. And I think that is an interesting membership there. That's why I put him in the intermediate circle rather than the inner one, because he's significant but not necessarily <coughs> central. And that's where I put those two. I think one effect of the Escalante affair is that they are moved into that sinbin, that intermediate group. 
and they know they do not in mid-60s have the same role that they had earlier or that they have later. I think that that's where they belong, fundamentally. Anil Alescalante, by the way, of course, has been dispatched to Eastern Europe to a diplomatic post in Prague, but does come back in 64 and does, unfortunately, sin again um, and therefore is thrown out the second time. And I think that's where I put those two as well. Their membership of the Liano entitles you to membership of the inner of the circles, but not the inner inner circle. I think Hart's the only one who's there. The outer circle, ah, you can have them. Take your pick. That's the lot. Okay. I, 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 they're just some of them. There are dozens of them, actually, who are in that outer circle. Chomon is interesting, by the way. Chomon is, remember, the one who is the leader, the last remaining significant leader of the Directorio Revolucionario, he, incidentally, is sent as ambassador to Moscow, the first ambassador to Moscow. I actually think that's quite significant. Um, it, he's certainly not been dispatched there because he's irrelevant. I think he's dispatched there to be quite a significant player in the relationship with the Soviet Union. And yet the group he was associated with was, if anything, characterised by its anti-communism before 1953, uh, in 52 when it's created. Others, I would put people like Lázaro Peña in there because he is significant within the whole system, but I think he doesn't play a political role in the decisions. I'd put Soto and Bravo there. I think they're interesting, by the way. They are junior members, if you like, of the PSP leadership. Why are they there? Well, interestingly, like Núñez Jiménez and Guevara, Antonio Guevara, they were students at Havana University at the same time and in the same group and the same generation as Fidel and others. In other words, I think they were part of that whole process of radicalization and are trusted because of that. They didn't take part in the Sierra, but they were certainly not at Moncada, but they are part of the PSP leadership who are reliable. And that's why I put Guevara Núñez Jiménez there as well. <coughs> Lastly on that one, I would say look at that second front. It is really interesting when you look at the details of those who took part in the Sierra but actually were part of Raúl's element of that in the second front in Sierra del Cristal because there really is a group loyalty there. One of the interesting things about them by the way is when you look to see what happened to a lot of the significant players from that group they then go on after 1959 to play a very significant role in either the Ministry of the Interior, the security services, the army or the police and the loyalty of those people is really quite significant, and they do survive. They really do survive quite significantly. Ramiro Valdez was one of those. So that membership of that second front seems to have a degree of ideological cohesion, which isn't necessarily evident in the bigger group of the other two um, fronts in the Sierra. Okay, I could go on. I'm not going to. Um, I'll put all these things there just in case. The fact is, when you look at the movement of mid-60s, you look at the mid-60s Communist Party, it's quite clearly dominated by, numerically and in every other respect, by the ex-guerrillas, quite clearly. And then also, at a certain point, dominated by those who were in the July the 26th movement, but not necessarily ex-guerrillas. They were, could have been in the Llano. They are better than the PSP people, who are clearly reduced in significance. In other words, what's happening is that there is a very, very large inner group at certain points, or the intermediate group has become, has become a little bit closer. And I think, interestingly, when you go beyond that, I'm not going to do it in detail because I'm coming to the end of my time, 
Here, at least, it's not like <laughs> um, Just here. If you look in 1975, 75, of course, if you read the literature, is the period of Sovietization. You'd expect the central committee of that party to be completely dominated by the PSP, but it's not. It's not. It's only about a third of the membership of the central committee are ex-PSP. What's clearly happened, whatever is going on in the relationship between Cuba and the Soviet Union, or between the arguments about institutionalization and following the political structures as recommended by Moscow, what's clearly happening is the guerrillas are still the ones trusted. You move on to rectification. The, the, suddenly the people who have been dispatched to the outer or the intermediate circles come back in. And the interesting thing again is loyalty is determined by loyalty to those people is determined by what did they do? Moncada, Gramma, Sierra. Or Llano even because it's better than PSP. There really is a pattern emerging there that, that group loyalty is tremendous. Now it all changes actually in the 1980s when you look at another group that comes in and that's the Grupo de Apoyo. It's called the Grupo de Apoyo, it's also called the Coordination and Apoyo. It's fundamentally a kitchen cabinet created by Fidel. Fidel does it for all the right reasons. He picks the 10 best, sorry, the 20 best, the 10 best males and females in the UJC, the UJC, the Young Communists, to train them to be the next generation of leaders, recognizing that there needs to be another generation. And they become the Grupo de Apoyo. And later on, they do go on to become very significant players. Certainly in the 1990s, Carlos Laje is a group from the Grupo de Apoyo. Roberto Robaina, one of the young, extremely young foreign minister, was one of those. Later on, also uh, Felipe Perez Roque, one of those as well. That Grupo de Apoyo is a very interesting group. They eventually, by the way, burn their boats badly. And I think they burn their boats, not just because of what they might or might not have done. To me, the interesting thing about that, by the way, is they are, two of them in particular, Felipe Perez Roque and Carlos Laje, are filmed by the security services, um, basically taking the piss out of Fidel and co, and have, having promised all sorts of things to all sorts of people outside Cuba, what will happen when we're in charge of Cuba? That clearly is a sin, fundamentally, however you look at it, but I think they've already sinned, actually, by not being in the group. They are Grupo de Apoyo, the only people, the only accountability they had was to Fidel. They did not have accountability to any other group. That was the problem, fundamentally. And what's clear is that the stalwarts, who were still around, people like Juan Almeida and others, and Ramiro Valdez, really had no time for them. You couldn't trust them. You could not rely on them. They were playing politics because they were not part of the group. They were not part of that body of, um, of original combatientes whose loyalty you could always rely on and who shared the whole notion of the project which they'd started with. And I think that's what their sin was, fundamentally. And interestingly, of course, as soon as Raúl comes into the presidency, one of the first things he does is remove them. And I have absolutely no doubt that, let's face it, since we know, what we, one we thing we do know about Raúl is that he believes very clearly in accountability. That's one reason why he emphasises the party above all, much more than others do, is because his view is that is the structure that you've got to have. You've got to be accountable back to that party. They were not, and that's part of the problem, fundamentally. <coughs> 
And I said the project. That's the point I'll finish on, because I think, interestingly, the project is actually... Well, we know what the project is. It was what they started with, and we know that, because the way I would put it is, in the early 90s, there's a huge debate in Cuba. If you, if you were there at the time, you'll know this, but actually you can read about it anywhere... Debate is, how the hell do we save the revolution, right? Well, they end up with a, with a program which in 1992-3 does indeed save the revolution. That, however, immediately starts another debate. Okay, but what have we saved? What is the revolution? There is, again, a huge debate. And we know that because if you read Temas, if you read Contra Corriente, if you read these things or listen to what's going on in all the different academic centres of the time, that's fundamentally what it's about is, okay, let's look at what we've actually lost with those reforms. Let's look at what we've actually saved. Have we saved, have we thrown the baby out with the bathwater, fundamentally? And what they end up with, I think, is a version of the project they started with in 59, 60, 61. It is interesting, I always think, that when Fidel, one of the things Fidel says, I actually said I wouldn't mention him, but I mentioned him now, when he's, when, uh, what, after the Soviet Union collapses, one of the things, revealing things, he says, at least we can make our own mistakes. <laughs> and I actually think, in a sense, that's revealing, because what clearly happened in 1961-62 was that Cuba got locked into the Cold War. And that gave them all sorts of possibilities. It gave them Comic-Con, it gave them the only significant sugar market in the world that was left. It gave them all that. It gave them opportunities, but it also restricted in a number of ways. And I think that was always resented in certain quarters of that group. So the group starts to reconstruct that whole process, I think, from the mid-90s onwards and starts to pick up on things. And I would leave, leave you with nothing other than to say, when Raoul says he is loyal to the revolution, so whatever reforms he's coming up with, he's loyal to the revolution, I think that's what he means that 1959-61 version of it in a newer world with no Soviet Union, with no Comic-Con, in which you have to, co to compromise, in which you have to go along with a globalised economy. That's part of the problem, of course. Final point, though, is the group. That group, everybody's talking about what happens when Raúl goes, which, of course, he will do in 2018, at least he will leave the presidency. He may not, of course, leave the party leadership because that's got another few years to run. My guess is he won't yet. But the group has gone as well. The group will disappear. They're the same age. The only ones left are the ones who were teenagers when they joined the Sierra, people like the Minister of Defence, Intra Frias. They're, they're still around, but they haven't got long left. So there clearly is now another generation. It's the generation of the leadership that's interesting. And I think the, the point there is that point about what happened to the Grupo de Apoyo. They were not accountable. I actually think that's where that next leadership is coming from, as far as we can tell. They have worked their way up through the system and are accountable. They have, they have clearly earned their spurs, no longer in the Sierra, no longer in any of those things, so they can't. They've earned their spurs in other ways. So that's the only bit of prediction I will give. But that is likely to be, well, of course, I'm just simply saying, look at Diaz-Canel. That's how he's done it, but he's not alone. I actually think that there, there are significant developments there, possibly. I'm not going to say any more than that, that might give us the clue. The point about it is that loyalty, though. Loyalty within the leadership is crucial. I actually think that tells us a lot more about the system itself, but that's the end of it. I won't say any more than that, now. So, thank you. Thank you.